The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or you can call them at IG Private Wealth Management 905 972 7420. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Good morning, Scott. How are you doing? Morning. So morning, far, Scott. so good. My goodness, it's uh, been a long summer and uh, a lot has happened, including very recently the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, does that have any effect on anything as far as the economy or markets or stability? Likely nothing on that note. Um, but, you know, it is, uh, it's a whole era that we've, uh, both you and I have enjoyed for all of our lives and then some. Um, you're the same age as me, Scott. And I was, you know, she was 11 years on the throne before we were born. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's amazing. And I, I, I kind of like, uh, you know, you, you look at the Ron Foxcrofts in the world and then you look at somebody like Queen Elizabeth and, and Freedom's 96, you know. There you go. Yeah. And he will be very happy to hear that comparison, Don. <laughs> no, he listens to the show. So I'm Ron, sure he, uh... Ron, you are just like the queen to us. <laughs> In fact, he was one of the few people I know that has actually met the queen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah with the Argyles. Yes, very, it was uh, quite a moment. And and again, with that, she has met so many prime ministers, every almost every president of the United States. She's gone through recessions and conflicts. And one thing I like to say, you know, the, you know, I know Netflix did a great uh job on in terms of going over her life in that uh series called the crown Mm -hmm. and you know just just fascinating what she's gone through but through thick and thin if there was some parallel to our business it's not necessarily that any one individual has any effect on the markets but it really is how things will do in the long run and she has gone through more recessions and more upheaval and you know labor and shortages and high unemployment you name it but you know, there's a constant over all that time. If you ride through it, things will do better and, mm-hmm. and, and, and revert to the mean go to the average. And that's what the markets always tend to do. They revert to the average. And we're seeing that this year. This year, uh, uh, you know, the summer's passed. And here we are, you know, nine weeks later. And what's happened? Well, we, I know going into the end of June, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't all that great. Uh, markets were down in general for the first six months of the year. Um, Generally speaking, June 16th, 17th, uh, July 5th, we're in that neighborhood, we're the lows of the stock markets throughout the world. And the the Toronto stock market hit its low on July 14th. And since then it's gone up 6%. Now it's still down eight and a half percent year to date. Uh, The the, uh, Standard & Poor's 500, which is the 500 largest companies in the US, it hit its low point on the year on June the 16th. And since then it's gone up 9%. Sounds good while well, that's born in Canada, but in reality, it's still down 16% on the year. And the Dow Jones, which is a more conservative, more value oriented companies, um, it hit its low on June the 17th and it's gone up six and a half percent, but it's still down 13% year to date. The NASDAQ is the real one that has a lot of volatility, a lot of the tech stocks in the NASDAQ. And so it hit its lows June 16th. It's gone up 12% since then. 
And you think, wow, that's great. It's really recovered. Yes, it has recovered, but it's still down 25% year to date. And that's because those areas, the, the tech sector did extremely well during the pandemic. And it was up dramatically in the growth stocks. And we talked about this on the show earlier, the growth stocks did extremely well during the pandemic. What else did really well during the pandemic? Well, Bitcoin, <laughs> the <laughs> cryptocurrencies, they did insanely well during the pandemic. And uh, they touched on their low, very similar to the NASDAQ on June 17th. They're up 12% in, since that June 17th period. However, they are down 54% year to date. Oh. You're, ta you're talking about Bitcoin specifically right now? Yeah, specifically Bitcoin. Others are down a lot more than that. I can certainly notice the uh, change in Mitch's face when you started to mention Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bitcoin. There's all. There's so many. Well, I mean, there's thousands of cryptos. I just wanted to clar clarify that Bitcoin's only it's down that much. Others are down like ninety nine percent. So yeah, others are basically you know virtually worth nothing. So Bitcoin is kind of the you know the one most people are familiar with. It's the largest currency in the crypto market in Europe. No stranger. Doesn't matter where you live. Um, it hit its uh, low July 5th, um, and it's up 5.5%, but still 18% negative on the year. So everything is down. And you say, well, at least, you know, if you had it in bonds, you'd be safe. Well, that actually wasn't true either. The Canadian bond interest rate for 30-year bonds has gone from 1.7% at the beginning of the year to over 3% year-to-date. So that's great. It sounds good. But what happens when interest rates rise, bonds go down. And their bonds are down over 10% year to date. So even if you thought you're parking your money in Canadian government bonds, very safe. And I know last year we talked about that a lot, saying it's not necessarily safe putting your money in, locking it in for long periods of time when interest rates are this low. Because when they go up, bonds will go down in value. And that's what happened now. On the other hand, you're starting to see a lot of the interest rates going up. You're seeing not only long-term bonds, but you're seeing, you know, we had an interest rate rise of 0.75 just uh, this week. And so anybody that has cash sitting in interest-bearing investments, they're starting to go up also. So you're seeing GICs at the 4% to even 5% levels. You're seeing cash or our cash accounts paying 3.8% right now. So lots of, uh, you know, the money sitting in cash is great, but at the end of the day, inflation is the reason interest rates are rising. And inflation hasn't, we haven't broken the back of inflation over the summer. It has uh, still been around that 8% area. And so that's why we're having these increases in interest rates. Um, and this is why the markets are down. And this is why the bond market's down. And on that topic, what about houses? You know, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of people that have never seen a housing market drop. And Scott, you and I have seen this. Yeah. Uh, we, We've seen many times where the market dropped. I know my first house I bought in the early 80s, uh, sorry, the mid 80s, and it, it, it rose incredibly. But then the recession in 1990, the market dropped 25%. And it took 10 years to even get your money back. Well, we're starting to see that when the real estate market, not too dissimilar to crypto, you see, that's how volatile the real estate market was. When you're still comparing real estate with the cryptocurrency market, you know you got two different asset classes there. And the real estate market went up 53% in two years. That's crazy. Well, you, yeah, it was nuts. And, it, and now you're starting to see some major declines in the real estate market. Generally speaking, uh, for 
outside of the GTA, it's down over 20% year to date. And so, and, and, and you know, I talk about reverting to the mean, the Toronto real estate market from 2000 to 2022, it's average is 8% a year. Now, if you all of a sudden see a 25% a year over each year for two years, you know, you're way above the average. Yeah. Yeah. And so things you know, do you, hit, you, you hit euphoria there. Eh? Like everyone is <laughs> oh. euphoric. Everyone wants to get into real estate at this point and it's become like candy. It's so easy to buy, sell, flip, you know, it's euphoric at that point. And you got to feel for those people who uh, right at the height of it all, oh, I got to get in, I got to get in and purchased and down it goes. And yeah, absolutely. Mitch, you, you hit the nail on the head with uh, euphoric is, is definitely the word. And when there is that, that attitude, and that feeling and it's it's almost like there's a party going on you want to be part of this party that's when you say no i'm not going to do the party say no to real estate like saying no to drugs because that you're a for you for feeling is like go. a drug it is a drug that people want to have that experience it feels great but then it doesn't feel so good after it's down 20 percent. and so that's exactly what it was interest rates were all-time lows People were around sitting at home during the pandemic. Uh, there was this better buy now before they go up even further. The grandparents were all helping out the, their, 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 uh, and parents were helping out their kids buy a house. Talk about flippers. When you see general, almost everybody became a real estate investor. And then next thing you know, there's real estate shows. And there's real estate mutual funds who are buying houses and REITs that were simply buying houses in Hamilton and other areas and using as rental income. You know it was too hot. These all came together all in the same time. And so, yeah, euphoric is the word. So has it been an eventful summer? We're starting, I would say not necessarily. Um, you know, again, probably the biggest news is unfortunately was the Queen's passing, but we're starting to see things will work its way back. You're starting with interest rates rising. There already is some sign that it's having an effect. It takes 18 to 24 months to, for, real, for interest rates to have an effect on the market. And you saw that when interest rates dropped during the pandemic, that happened in early 2000. Well, by late, a year later, you saw the real estate market really pick up. It took a little bit of a time till people felt really comfortable when buying real estate saying, well, and then all of a sudden everybody in the stock market picked up and everything really picked up. It took some time. The same will happen with real estate. I uh, sorry, with interest rates affecting the economy. Uh, you're starting to see it now. Unemployment figures this week. You saw there was a third consecutive month. Unemployment uh, has increased. And so that is having an effect. And this is real estate driven. Uh, sorry, real estate. This is interest rate driven. And so, yes, interest rates we're probably the biggest topic so far this year. And they are the driver of all these things we just talked about. So at the end of the day, yes, Scott. Can I, I just want to ask a question because we were uh, a few weeks ago talking about how, you know, um, how low the employment rate, unemployment rate was and, and historically below 5%. Now it's starting to creep up. What does that say? What kind of indicator is that? How concerned should we be about that? Generally, un unemployment is a lagging indicator. It's after they've already, so that, that's why you see the stock markets react right away. Yeah. So you saw the market. The US or Canada? Uh, Canada. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the Canadian went to 5.4 uh, this past week. 
And mm-hmm. so uh, it's still low, by the way. It's still yeah. hard to find good Very people, um, as, as most employers will find. But it's a lagging indicator. The stock market is generally a leading indicator. So it's the first react. And real estate is also a bit of a lagging indicator. It takes a while for it to react, too. And you're starting to see that now, too. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Taking a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. All right, September, kids heading back. First real sort of normal year, if you can say that. Uh, mm. in a long time, but uh, obviously uh, putting the emphasis on how important it is to save for that education and RESPs. Yeah, you got it, Scott. School's back in session for sure. I know the other day I was stuck in traffic behind some school buses, some crosswalks. Everyone's actually back in the classroom. It's, it hasn't really been like that since 2019. Lots have been either half remote, half in person. I, I have some friends that are teachers and they're sending me pictures of their classrooms and they were dead empty and now they're totally full and he's they're loving it they're I was so happy to see everyone back i love my students it's just you get that personal experience yeah. right and especially for the universities uh people who are going to university the last few years they've always been remote uh, yeah been at home and maybe have their parents breathing down their neck maybe their grades have been a little better because of that who knows mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> i know it's but, the first year uh my daughter's going into third year so this is sort of the first year for campus life to be normal and the first thing she said to me was i can't believe how busy it is how packed it is just in town and at the university itself yeah i'm sure she's loving it it's, uh, yeah and everyone's excited to get out and do something i know if you notice everywhere, like if you look at the CNE, the CNE almost has yeah. a record amount of people to show up. So you look at anything that they're doing and people just want to go to everything. And that's great. And, li- and now people get to live on campus and not live at home. So they get that full experience and they get to grow up a little bit. Uh, but school is also expensive and there are ways to save for this. In many cases, it's, it's a lot more expensive now than it was before because of inflation. Inflation is obviously ramping up here and the cost to school is something that's always constantly rising with it. So Stats Canada has reported in 2022, the average cost for university in Canada is $48,074 if the student lives at home for four years. Wow. If the, if the student goes and lives outside of home for four years, the cost of living, everything all in is around $96,000 for four mm. years of school. And I found a calculator on the StatsCan site and it takes all the averages across the country and it estimates, you can put in any, any birth year you want. So I put in 2022, how much do they estimate? Is it gonna cost for someone in 18 years to go to school? And they're estimating that it will cost $134,000 in 2040. So if they're born today, wow. in 18 years they go to school, it's $134,000 if they're gonna live on campus 
Huh. I actually think that's low because so I, I did the math and it's two, it's, it's only a 2% increase per year and hmm. inflation is much more than 2% right now. And, and generally, think- generally, Mitch, uh, in the history of my 37 years, we've always noticed that the inflation rate for universities has always been higher yeah. than the general Canadian inflation rate. So I, yeah. I also agree with that, Mitch, that it is likely low. Yeah, I know you you showed me a great article and I, I read it this morning and it said inflation might be around two to three percent for common expenses like food and such. But the school expense actually goes up around five percent. That's been normal. Hmm. So you're, 134,000 is actually on the extremely low side. So it might be 150, 160, 170 dollars for four years of school. You know, you have to ask, you have to ask at what point do people like you and, 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 and other financial advisors sit down and figure out exactly how much it costs to say for an average degree at an average school across country, across the country and what that costs. And we certainly know the situation with student debt and having to pay for education. If they had just taken that money, not got the education and invested it where they'd be <laughs> at the other end. I mean, things are getting so expensive. You have to wonder at what point do we start making that calculation? Yeah, yeah that, that, that would be an interesting calculator. <laughs> That's for sure. Hey, you know what? You shouldn't really go to school. Just invest yeah. that money instead. Just save your but money. It's almost at the point. Yeah, but it's yeah, it's almost at the point that if you just go get an undergrad degree, look, it's lots of employers don't even they don't care too much about it. It's not as big a deal as it was yeah. 10, 20, 30 years ago, right? It used to be yeah. a lot bigger deal. And now it's like, okay, now you get to have get your master's on top of that, your MBA, yeah. and they come out with tons of student debt. And it could take 10, 20 years just to pay that off until you're finally accumulating wealth for yourself, right? Yeah. And instead of paying off that debt for 10 years, what if you were to be collecting from your investment off that? I mean, it, it's it's an interesting conversation. Not no, that I'm yeah, recommend not that yeah. I'm recommending it, and my kids are not listening right now. <laughs> in fact, one of them is in university, as you know, and the other exactly. one's hoping to go. Yes. And we would we have been dil- dil- diligent in putting money away for those kids. There, yes. Scott. So well, I guess what I'm saying is now that we're taking it out, maybe I should give it back to dad. <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing is with the RESPs, it's kind of interesting where they, the, as long as this has been going on, it was been a two thousand per year was the maximum you can contribute to an RESP, Registered Education Savings Plan. Well, they bumped that up to 2,500 per year, which sounds good on paper, but they never changed the amount of grant that the government has given us. And so over all these years of rising costs of of post-secondary, there hasn't been any increase in really, and there's been no increase in the RESP. And I know you want to touch on that, Mitch. Yeah, thanks for thanks for diving into that. <laughs> they did increase that, I think, a few years ago. So now, if you put in thirty six thousand uh, dollars, you will get. That's how you get the full grant of seventy two hundred dollars. Uh, I, you would assume that they would look to increase that at some point, because obviously, how are they going to afford to pay for school if it's only seventy two hundred in grant, right? And, and trust me, Mitch, uh, that seventy two hundred hasn't changed since I was accumulating it for you. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> okay <laughs> oh man <laughs> wow <laughs> uh but it, that is a great benefit of the account though every you get for every dollar every cent you put in 20 20 percent of that gets uh, a government grant 
And these contributions can be done all the way until from when they were open. So as soon as you get your social insurance number for your baby, that's zero, age zero, all the way until the last month of the year they turn 17, is for the length that you can contribute to this plan. It's a great benefit because you get to grow that tax-free. So if you get that grant, you're growing tax-free on that government grant all the way until you're taking it out. And if you start early, you can really capitalize on doing that. So if you if you start when you're if you start right when they're born and they put it away, two hundred eight dollars a month, so it gets you twenty five hundred dollars a year to get the maximum amount of grant, which is five hundred dollars. And if they go to thirty six thousand dollars and they stop after fourteen years and they just let it grow uh, at five percent per year, they'll have grown to sixty four thousand dollars in their RFSP in their RESP, which doesn't sound like a lot after we just said how much the school is going to cost. But if you're, let's say you're a different family and you wait until they're age 10 and you do 5,000 a year because you are allowed catch up years and it's $416 a month and you do that all the way until they're 18. So you both contribute the same amount, that $36,000, their RESP is only going to be worth $42,000. So it's actually $22,000 difference if you wait, uh, that amount of time versus just starting when they're zero, putting it away monthly, $208 a month is much easier than $416 a month. And it's a lot better to do that. So you can get the most out of growing that government grant as much as possible. Right. Uh, the RESP is taxed eventually when the child uses the account, the child gets to use it and it comes at the grant and income portion gets to come out in their name. So it's taxed in their hands. And typically kids don't have too much income. So this is taxed maybe at zero, or it could be at the very lowest tax bracket, just over 15,000 is the, is the threshold there. So typically it's gonna result in no tax here. Uh, a great strategy we typically like to rec recommend in many circumstances is to get the government grant portion out as soon as possible during the first semester. The, the uh, most that you can get out during the first semester is $5,000 if you're a full-time student. If you're a part-time student, you can get $2,500 of the grant portion out. Uh, so we suggest you do this for semester. Just It's a risk management strategy just so that if they do go to school and they don't like it or they just give up on school, at least you get the government grant and income portion out and there's not gonna be any penalties because if you do wait to take that out and, and the child doesn't go back to school, you have to return that back to the government. And the income is actually gonna be taxed in the adult's hands if they have to close the RESP. And there's, so it's taxed at your marginal rate, as well as a 20% penalty on top of that. So it does really nickel and dime you, and it could be big penalties if you do have to close the RESP. And uh, so what classifies as a full-time student versus a part-time student? It's basically, if you have three weeks in a row with at least 10 hours of instruction per week, then you're a full-time student. If you have 12 hours per month, then you're a part-time student. So there is a difference between part-time and full-time students here. And you really should be putting away monthly so that you're gaining as much as you possibly can there. Okay. So, so the one thing ahead. is with scholarships, and, and I, I have this question often, Mitch, is people say, well, if I, I've got a 50% you know, ride because I got a scholarship for my daughter or my son, um, I don't know if I, how, how can I take these RESPs out? And the one thing about this, it's all about attendance. It's not about whether they're getting a scholarship or not. So th that's the great thing with the RESPs. 
if uh, if they even if the whole thing was paid for free and they got 100% paid for by for an athletic or a, or an academic scholarship, at least that they can still pull the money out of the RESP and put that money elsewhere so they can help, you know, pay for a car down the road, help for a purchase of, of a house or what have you. It does not have to be used for education. It, it is earmarked for that. Uh, but if they find that they don't need it all, it can be used to help out the kids later. But anytime you're getting free money from the government, just take it. Yeah. You know, it's $7,200 free. And then you're getting the growth on that. And the nice thing is, as Mitch, we were talking about is, is it's taxed to the is the student, and generally speaking, there are very low mm-hmm. tax brackets. Mm-hmm. So they you have all this growth tax free uh, growth for eighteen years, and then out the out the other end, they pay the tax on it. Likely, quite normally, they hardly pay any tax, if any, on this. And you're and you know as you mentioned, it was around sixty four thousand dollars at five percent. Well, that means if you put in thirty six, almost half of it is growth and grant. So that means the government's growth and the growth on that money, the government's portion and the grant money or the growth on that money is half and your own principal is the other half. So, uh, you know, I know, Scott, uh, we've talked about this before, but when the kids finally do end up going to post-secondary, it is, it's certainly a big deal, uh, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's for, from a financial standpoint, it becomes more of a speed bump than uh, anything that dramatic. Uh, and I've talked about this many times. And as we said, I've got one in university and one in high school. And uh, as Mitch was pointing out, it's one of those things that as soon as you get your kid's social insurance number, you know, as soon as they're born, uh, before you even name them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <maybe> not. <laughs> um, but seriously, if you if you start, you know, at the very, very beginning, it makes it a tremendous amount easier, a, tr- a tremendously amount easier uh, at the end of it all. And, you know, you don't realize that by the time your kids are 17 or 18, you got a whole swack of other financial commitments and responsibilities and, and pressures and stress on you. So, you know, if, if you can get started on this day one, boy, that's, that's a huge help. Anything else you want to add to that, Mitch? Well, it still leaves a pretty big gap from the RESP to the cost of school. So it's 64000 If you start at age zero, it's still a pretty big difference. So applying for student loans, scholarship, grants, maybe you have nice grandparents who want to help you out, or uh, getting a part-time job while the kid's in school is another option to help subsidize that. Uh, but also just making sure you're withdrawing as, as effectively as possible, because if you're taking it out and maybe the kid's making a lot of money, I know we've seen these circumstances, the kids actually making good money and this, do you really want to take all the income out in one semester? That's something that you should really evaluate when you sit down with the parents and possibly the kid to see what their mindset is on what their school is. If they're going to really stick out school, maybe they're an entrepreneur and they're running their own business and they don't really want to keep doing school. So the RESP grant should come out all in the first semester versus waiting until the next one. Yeah, actually, you can only take 5000 of growth and grant in the first semester, but certainly in the first year after that, um, pulling it all out. And, you know, depending on academic, absolutely taking the money out early, but we can pull those funds out. They can pay the tax on it, again, being in low tax brackets, throw it into their tax-free savings accounts, um, putting it into non-registered. But quite often, uh, what I see, the, probably the biggest mistake I see from parents is trying to spread it over the number of years that they hope the kids will be going to school. All and right. so on, on a four-year program, oh, I'll just take a quarter out each year and we'll just do it that way. What, what happens if the kid only makes it two years and decides they want to go a different route? 
Well, you've left perhaps a lot of growth in grant that will be ended. The grant has to be returned back to the government and the growth is ends up a 20% tax penalty mm. if you pull it out to the parent or it can be moved to the your parents are our RSP if there's RSP room. So it is great to unencumber that RESP as quick as you can and try to make a, a great strategy on the withdrawal, as Mitchell just mentioned. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Another quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net, 905-972-7420 if you want to call them at IG Private Wealth Management. All right, always uh, an interesting discussion and certainly one that uh, uh, many seniors and many uh, of us older people are questioning and that's your uh, old age security. When do you take it? When do you not? Yes, and, and a lot of people up until recently weren't aware that you could actually delay old age security. Um, it, it, you had to take it at 65. That was a rule up until, I don't know, five or six, seven years ago. And uh, they, they changed that rule. And there's a 0.6% uh, increase if you wait until 70, which works out to a six, 36% per, that's 0.6 per, per month, a 36% increase if you wait till 70. And generally speaking, we, you know, we've talked about the Canada pension plan in delaying it till 70, and you're getting a 42% increase by waiting till 70 on the Canada pension plan. And quite often, while well, hedge your bets, why not uh, you know, take the OAS when you can? Uh, at 65 and maybe delay the Canada pension plan. And every situation is so different and definitely speak to your financial planner on what's the best situation for you, because there's lots of variables. And we're going to touch on a couple of these here, but the old age security, everybody who is 75 in the summertime got a raise. They got a 10% raise for being 75. Um, back in August, they, they, it was one of the platforms the liberal government put out. And so it went from about $667 a month to $733 a month, starting at if you're 75 or older. So this is a, a 10% bump. Well, now it says, okay, well, if this is 10% bump, if you delayed your old age security till 70, instead of getting $667 a month, you'd be getting $907 a month. And your 10% bump is bigger because now it's a 10% on a larger number. And so you would actually end up at $998 a month at age 75, when you got the 70, uh, sorry, the 10% bump. So there would be a difference of $265 a month at 75, if you had deferred your old age security to age 70. So it still comes down to math and what's the break even? Well, I worked out the new break even and the break-even point is age 83. Now, that's without any inflation because both of these are indexed. So by waiting, you're also getting indexing or the indexing is simply the amount of inflation each year on a bigger number. 
So it's the break-even point is 83, but that's the worst case scenario. It's likely lower than 83. And so if you lived only till 70, you basically left $40,000 on the table. That would be your $667 a month for, for five years. And that's $40,000. And you think, I want to have that money. And I can't blame you. That's actually, you know what, uh, sometimes a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush type of thing. However, if you've lived a long time, or your life expectancy is, is, to, is expected to be past 83, you're going to think, well, maybe I, I could defer it. And there's no risk also. You're, you're betting the Canadian government keeps paying you. Um, there is clawback. It, it starts at about 80000 So you do have to manage the old age security clawback situation. And again, this is where you really need to go through the numbers with the financial planner. But right now in Canada, a 65-year-old male will live to age 84. So just over the break even. And the age and a 65-year-old female will live past the age, will live to the age of 87. And so there, the math was that women generally, men would get about a nine percent, a nine thousand dollar on average extra money by putting this off till age 70. And women would get about 17,000 extra by waiting till 70. But this is interesting. When you look at averages, the averages include smokers, non-smokers. Okay, they didn't break it up enough. They include people with type 2 diabetes and people that don't, people that are fit and people that aren't fit, people that worked in factories and people were, were, uh, were self-employed. And also, it's interesting, even income levels make a difference on life expectancy by actually up to about two years. So the bottom quintile of incomes live about two years less than the top fifth of the population that with incomes. So all this comes into play, and this is why you need to have this conversation. Now, as a tribute to the Queen, if you live to 96, <laughs> you would end up with $41,340 more mm. in your old age security if you, age, if you live to age 96. Wow. And so all you listeners out there, you look at your history, your genes, and, and your health situation, if you think you're going to live to 96, and I know my mother, she's always said, my, I, I'm living to 95, I'm having a big party. Well, <laughs> it sounds like the Queen's having one heck of a party on her 96. Unfortunately, she's not here, but it, it there sounds like there's going to be a lot of tributes to the Queen, which is fantastic. But from a financial planning standpoint, Take a look at your Canada pension plan and even now more so your old age security with this new bump of 10%. It may just fit into your financial plan as of, the, as of this recent change. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. And Mitch, uh, we were talking about uh, things that had happened over the summer. Another one, luxury tax. So if you're uh, making a, a lot of dough and you're buying big boats, this is going to hit you. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely what the government's 
saying that they're trying to do here they're trying to hit the people who are making a lot of dough but it's actually possibly going to hit the middle class a lot more than the rich which is their intention but uh yeah they they discussed this about a year ago and as of september 1st it's been put in place it's a brand new tax in canada it's called the luxury goods tax uh, it's been put in place to target luxury vehicles private jets and yachts now that sounds really expensive but the the classifications are a little they're a little, little suspect in some cases, but the finance minister and deputy prime minister, Krista Freeland, said that this tax is going to help ensure the wealthiest Canadians are paying their fair share in taxes. But many manufacturers in Canada have come out saying this will really kill jobs in their industry. So what is the luxury tax? This is a new tax that covers new cars, new plants and new boats that are manufactured after the year 2018. So it's not going to affect any used vehicles. It's only going to affect new cars. For the vehicles and planes, this tax is applied if the price of the goods exceeds $100,000. For boats, it is $250,000. So if you buy a boat over 250 grand, you're going to be taxed. And if you buy a car or plane over 100, it's also going to be taxed. Only vehicles are used for personal use. So no business vehicles are going to be taxed by this at all. Motorcycles, ATVs, snowmobiles, motorhomes. So if you have an RV or you're going to buy a new RV, uh, that would be also exempt from the tax. Currently, there are no exemptions for electric vehicles, which it can be a little contradictive because mm -hmm. lots of electric vehicles are pretty close, if not already many yeah. over $100,000. And there's so many incentives to get electric vehicles there because they're trying to be extremely green, promote electric vehicles, stop getting this gas, right, pumping out everywhere. And yet, if that electric vehicle exceeds $100,000, you're going to be dinged for it. Uh, for boats, yachts, sailboats, deck boats, water ski boats, and houseboats are all included in the taxation, but floating boats, fishing boats, and ferries are all excluded. <laughs> so how much is wow. this tax? The, the tax is calculated as the lesser of 10% of the price of the item, or 20% of the price of the item subtracted by the threshold of 100,000 or 250,000 if it's a boat. So let's take a, an example here. If a car is purchased for $110,000, it would be subject to an additional $2,000 in luxury tax because the 20% value of the 10,000 between 100 and 110 is less than the 11,000 that it would cost if it was 10% of the full value of 110. So are, you only tax, so are you only tax the extra tax on the money above that threshold then? It depends. Or are you taxed on it, the whole thing? It, it depends. So if you buy a $200,000 car per se, it, you're, it, it'd be the same either way. It'd be 10% yeah. of 200,000 or it'd be percent of 100,000. It's going to be the same both right. ways. So it's right. whichever one's less. Uh, if someone was to buy a really expensive boat, $560,000 boat, this add another $56,000 in tax. Uh, it's all excluded of GST and HST, so they're going to add that on top of that as well. Uh, this tax has to be paid by manufacturers, wholesalers, real retailers, and importers, all of which they'll have to register with the CRA. Uh, manufacturers are they're really upset by this because the government's just failed to realize that this isn't going to target the rich. It's actually going to target the dealers, manufacturers, and the middle class. An example of that would be someone who's worked their whole life. Maybe they worked 40 years from 25 to 65, and they want to buy their dream car in their retirement. Let's say they really want a $1,000 car that's been in their retirement plan for their whole life, and they're maybe they're only making seventy-five dollars to $100,000 their whole life, and they saved all this money, put it away, and now they're going to have to pay an 
additional 20,000 in tax. And this, that's not really taxing the rich. When you think of the rich, those people are, they don't really think too much of buying a $200,000 car, right? Those, that's the uber rich that they're saying they're taxing, but this middle class who saved up their whole life is also going to have to pay their tax. And there are ways to get around this. So they're only taxing new cars. They're not taxing used or leases. So you can lease a car and you're not going to be taxed on that. So I, I already know used cars right now are kind of, they're tough to come by. And this is going to drive the price prices. of, yeah, this is going to drive the price of those uh, products in the used market up, obviously. Exactly. You're going to see less used cars because everyone's going to want to buy one that's barely used. Mm-hmm. And it's, even if it exceeds $100,000, they don't have to pay that 10 or 20% tax, depending upon the cap, the cost, right? And so used cars might be tougher to come by. The new cars might be sitting on lots. And it's the government's hoping to get $163 million in revenue per year by doing this tax. But there's an aviation industry that wrote a letter to Freeland and Trudeau saying that this is going to result in $1 billion in lost revenue and $1,000 in job loss just from the aviation industry. So if you if you do the math, the government's kind of missing out. If that's going to be the difference, the revenue of the aviation is going to be significantly more than the cost the government's actually going to recoup. And then what's the government going to do with that 163 million dollars? Is another whole another story, right? Versus the aviation giving those thousand dollars, thousand jobs. And I always always find people are very innovative, and companies will be innovative, and people maybe even get their own to buy vehicles like people yeah. will find many ways to get around the tax and you're absolutely right uh, mitch i i think there'll be more harm than good done with this tax so like time will tell and who knows if it if it fails they'll they'll perhaps the next government will just get rid of that will be long-hanging fruit so we'll, we'll see what happens we have been planning our financial future i'm scott thompson don fox and mitch fox have been here from fox group private wealth management you can find out more at donfox.net you can call them at ig private wealth management at 905-972-7420 thank you gentlemen great show to start the uh, new season and have yourself a great week the preceding was a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser the opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.